All right, let's open up our Bibles to James. We are at James chapter 2. If you're visiting, we are going through the book of James this summer. So we are at James chapter 2. And we're going to pick up at verse 14. We'll read through the end of the chapter. So that's James chapter 2, and we're at verse 14. This is God's holy word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. All right, would you be able to determine if a $100 bill was real or fake? Now, we're not talking Monopoly money, okay? I'm not handing you, I don't even know, a pink bill that looks like it's made of paper and say, do you think this is a real bill? I'm talking a high-end counterfeit. Somebody who is very crafty, very skilled in forgery, We have that $100 bill, and then we have an actual, real, authentic $100 bill. Do you think you would be able to distinguish between the two? I think the average person probably could be duped. And that is why part of U.S. currency has several security features in to help you to determine, to help you to distinguish whether or not you are dealing with a real bill or a fake bill. Some of the... uh, Security measures include color shifting ink. So if you've ever noticed, if you kind of keep folding your, the, flipping the dollar back and forth, in the bottom corner, you'll see a little bit of a color shifting. It's because of the ink. Uh, there's a watermark, so you hold it up. You can see a watermark. Uh, a, a very clear sign is if you've got blurry borders, printing, or text, it's not a real bill because it's always going to be very crisp, very precise. A raised printing, you can actually scrape your, your nail against and you'll feel some texture because of the authentic bill. Uh, security threads with micro printing are found. Uh, if you hold it up against ultraviolet light, uh, there'll be a glow that's not going to be duplicated in a fake bill. There's red and blue threads and even the serial numbers. You see, in all of these uh, characteristics physically are intentional security measures to do what? to distinguish between authentic money and the fake stuff, to prevent people from being tricked and scammed. Well, in God's providence, 
works are the security measure that help us to distinguish between real saving faith and forgery, the fake stuff. Where there is faith, there will always be works. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at five thoughts on saving faith. We have a lot of work to do, so I'm going to try to keep us going. This is a pivotal passage in the Bible. It's a foundational truth for our, our, our faith. So I, I think it's very important. We'll, 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 we'll work our way through there. Uh, if you're taking notes, we're going to begin by looking at the counterfeit of faith. We're going to see this hypothetical example he sees where somebody has the opportunity to love on brothers and sisters in need and they don't do it and yet they claim to have faith. So we're going to see the counterfeit of faith. Secondly, we're going to look at the confirmation to faith. We're going to see that from James' point of view, his works are evidence, his works are proof that he really knows Jesus. Third thought we're going to consider is the cases for faith. He's going to give us two biblical examples. He's going to look at Abraham and he's going to look at Rahab and how both of them are people who not only say they have faith, it's evident in their actions. And then we get to verse 24. We're going to look at the controversy over faith. Verse 24, big deal. Lots of ink spilled over verse 24. Martin Luther did not like James being in the Bible because of that verse, because he thought it was so contrary to elsewhere in Scripture. And then lastly, we're going to look at the conclusion to make about faith. Like, is the Bible in conflict, or does God have a consistent message in the midst of all of this? All right, so let's get started as we pick up at verse 14 as we look at the counterfeit faith. Now, if you remember last week, the subject matter we looked at, does anybody remember it showing favoritism or partiality? Yes, exactly. And what we saw was what was happening at this church, at the churches that he was writing to, is that rich, prominent, important people in the community would come in and they would get VIP treatment. But the poor people, the people who are lower on the social stratosphere, They were being ignored. They were being told to stand in the back, sit at our feet. They're being disrespected. And James said, there is no reason for this to ever happen in the church. And what we're seeing is this this argument, this pattern throughout the book of James is that actions should be consistent with faith. Remember what he said, I don't want you to just be a hearer of the word. I want you to be a, a doer of the word. And, and this is really the, the pinnacle of the doer of the word theology as we consider this. Well, let's begin by noticing the circumstance that he paints. Read verse 14 with me. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is this? So a person is needed, not just a person is in need, it's a fellow believer, a fellow brother in Christ. They don't have proper clothing and they don't have food. So I want you to imagine the scenario. Uh, it's January in Ohio, so it's cold Lovely, delightful Toledo and the surrounding area weather. And you hear a knock on the door. You go to the door. It's one of you. It's one of you at another person's door 
You're sitting at the dinner table when they come. Food is all over. It smells good. It looks good. You're hungry. It's been a cold day outside. Uh, you have the, the fire on if you have a fireplace. If you don't have a fireplace, you have the heat on. It's feeling kind of warm and toasty. You've been out in the cold all day. And you open the door and it's that other person. And they look up and, and you see them and they're with their family and they're not clothed well. Not appropriate clothes for 20 degrees in Ohio. So they're, they're not clothed well. They're, they're dirty. They're, you, you can just tell they're struggling. And then the, the father says, man, we're going through some hard times. I lost my job last week. We've been trying to make ends meet, and we just got evicted from our house. Uh, we haven't actually ate for three days. Like, we are struggling. And you look at them, and you say, well, thank you for letting us know. We know how we can be praying for you. And if I hear anything, I will reach out to you and, and let you know. Have a good night. And as they're looking at your family eating, as they feel the warmth and they smell the food, you shut the door on them. Now that sounds pretty ridiculous, right? And that's kind of the context of this scenario that he's painting. These people have the opportunity to feed somebody in need. They have the opportunity to clothe somebody in need, to care for them. What do they do? They do nothing. They're doing the very thing that James told them to not do. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a what? And a doer of the word would see your brother or sister in need. And what would you do? You would have invited them in. They would have sat at that table and ate with you, and you would have figured out something. Even if long-term you can't keep them in your house, adding a family to your family, but you would do everything in your power to care for those people because that's what followers of Jesus Christ do. James 1.27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. You visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This hypothetical, and I'll probably do this often in our sermon, faith, this hypothetical faith, it's hypocrisy. It's inconsistent. It's a disconnect. First John 3.17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Well, do you help others who are in need? When? Why? Why do you help them? Do you see the, the calling kind of in the midst of this that we as followers of Christ, when we see opportunities, we step into those moments and we help because that's what followers of Christ do. But not only do you notice the circumstance, notice the condition that he declares the one who is of this kind of faith. Read verse 17 with me. He goes on and says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Notice what he doesn't say. It's sick. He doesn't say it's imperfect. He doesn't say it's a work in progress. It needs improvement. No, he says it's dead. You walk out in the parking lot today after church, and as you walk out by your car, there is somebody on the ground in the parking lot just laying there. What immediately are you going to do? What are you going to check for? You're going to check for vitals, right? You're going to check their heartbeat. You're going to check if they're breathing. You're going to call the ambulance. They're going to come. They'll continue to be checking. If they get to the hospital, they'll be monitoring things. They'll be monitoring scans, all that stuff. 
If there's no response, there's no pulse, no breathing, at least in that moment, they appear to be what? And what he's saying, if we come along to this faith without works that he's talking about, this person that can look at a brother in need, both for clothing and food, and they do nothing about it, he checks the faith's pulse. There's nothing. He checks the faith's breath. There's nothing, and he can honestly say that faith is dead. And why is that a problem? Because our faith is never to be what? Dead. We have a living faith, right? Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, this is a big problem. So I think we do need to start looking in the mirror. We need to start looking at our life, and we got to ask the question, is our faith dead or alive? If we were to check our faith's vital signs, what would be found? Is our faith useful, or is it useless? So we see this counterfeit faith, this circumstances, uh, this condition that he describes it as dead. Well, let's look at the confirmation of faith. James argues his faith is evidence— that he has a real faith, and it's evident by his works. Once again, it's another hypothetical scenario he talks about, kind of playing off the previous one. And here's the hypothetical situation. Person A says, I have faith, no works, but I have faith. Person B, I have faith as proven by my works. Which one is a real faith? Read verse 18 with me. He goes on and says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. There is proof in the works. You get that? The emphasis is on the person saying they have no faith and I don't need faith. And the faith is not that, or works is not that important. The person who has this, this quote unquote faith. Back to the initial thing. How do we know we're alive right now? How do we know? We just looked at it. Everybody here, I'm pretty confident, is breathing. Maybe not nonstop. Maybe you stop breathing, breathe. You know what I mean. Everybody's got a heartbeat. A heartbeat. Everybody's got brain functioning going on, right? Everybody here is alive. And what he's saying, you want to see that I'm alive? Look at my works. Now, what do we mean by works? I think we can mean a lot of things. Ultimately, we mean obedience to God, obedience to Christ. It's, it's good works flowing out of that. It's holiness. It's godliness going on in our lives. It is action based on what we believe. Jesus spoke of this. Listen, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you have love for one another. All right, think about that. So how do we know that we're disciples based on the world looking at us? If you and I are loving one another, what is implied if we're not loving one another? We might not be what? His disciples. It's that same kind of idea that the experience that we see of a person, their actions validate whether or not what's going on in their heart. John elsewhere 
similar argument, 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So who are children of God based on that? You practice what? Righteousness and you love your brother. Who are children of the devil? Those that don't practice righteousness and don't love their brother. You understand? That's the emphasis here. The proof is our actions. Works prove that we have faith. That's what James is beating the drum on. He wants to draw attention that you want to see my faith, just simply look at my life, and it will give evidence, it will give validation that my faith is a genuine saving faith. Well, can you show others your faith by your works? Or does your faith have no works? Is it really faith? Because that's the danger, friends. That's the concern. That's the worry that James is combating amongst God's people. Is this false security. This life that prayed a prayer that walked down an aisle, checked the box, and had no change in their life, and then they're wondering whether or not they, they, that's faith, and it's not. But not only do we see proof in works, we see the problem with the works. Go to verse 19 with me. He goes on and says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Have you ever uh, been stereotyped based on a category and you didn't like it? I remember when I used to work at that shipping company. Because I'm a professing Christian, I got lumped together with all Christians there. And some of the Christians didn't have the best reputations. Some of the Christians uh, were not looked highly upon, and not because they were acting like Christians. If anything, they were being very hypocritical as Christians. And I would get that stereotype, and I hated being labeled that because, like, it's not fair to me. Maybe you're a certain sports fan, or you're in a certain uh, political party, and, and there's also those outliers that kind of bring a bad name to whatever category you're in. And it's kind of uncomfortable, and you're like, so you're saying I'm in the same boat as them? That's, that's not fair. Well, listen to the boat he puts them in, the person without works. Listen to what he says again. Isn't it shocking? You believe that God is one. Now, why is that important? Because to the Jews, Deuteronomy, think of this, Deuteronomy 6.4, this was a foundational truth amongst the Jews, as it should be for you and I, mind you. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So they believe that, supposedly. Yeah, we believe, they profess it, God is one. He's like, that's spectacular. You know who else believes that God is one? The demons. Have you ever thought of that? Demons, they, they believe there's a God. They, they believe he's one. That, but is it a saving faith? No, it, it has, if anything, it causes them to shudder, probably for two reasons. One, out of fear, and two, out of anger. And what he's saying, this faith that they're talking about, without works, that puts you in the same boat with the demons. Does that make you a little uncomfortable today? Because that's what's going on there. 
that it, it, it makes no difference to them, this faith to the demons. It's useless. It's, it's dead. And that is the problem with a life of faith that doesn't have works. You're in the same boat as the demons, and the demons' boat, where is it traveling? To wrath, to condemnation and damnation for all eternity. That is where you are if you don't have those works. Are you resting in a work-free faith? Do you have a false sense of security? All right, so let's get practical. Let's get real. He doesn't just give these hypothetical examples. He said, let's go back to history. Let's go back and look in the Bible. Let's consider real people. Let's look at the cases for faith. We saw the counterfeit faith. We saw the confirmation of faith. Let's look at history and let's see faith and works going hand in hand. Read verse 21 with me. Because first of all, the example of Abraham is, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. All right, Abraham, if you remember, for those of you who've been here a while, we actually went through the book of Genesis. And we looked at Abraham, but if you remember Abraham's backstory, God came to him at Genesis chapter 12, and he made a promise. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's pretty awesome. I mean, wouldn't you like to be that person that God comes to you and says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you? What was the problem, though? Abraham was married to his wife, Sarah, and what did his wife not have? Child, she was, the Bible term, it's she was barren. So that was problem number one. They didn't have any kids. Uh, Newsflash, for you to uh, be a blessing to all the nations and to become a great nation, you actually have to have people. You have to have kids. And so they don't have that. And then the other problem is a really big problem. How, how, how young of age were Abraham and his wife? They were old. They were beyond normal childbearing years, it, it seemed. So that's the problem. You got a barren woman who was old, and God gives this promise. And not only that, guess how long it takes before God fulfills this promise? 25 years. 25 years of waiting. And he has faith in the midst of that, even though it doesn't make sense, he keeps believing, he keeps trusting that somehow, some way, now they, they get impatient, right? And they get Hagar, and they end up having this illegitimate child, Ishmael. And he's like, voila, I created my own heritage for this promise. And God's like, yeah, Ishmael is not the one of the promise. No, I'm going to give you one of the promise. So he finally, 25 years of this promise and waiting, he has Isaac. And that's awesome. And Isaac grows from being a child to a young man. We don't know how old specifically. But then God comes along to him and he tells him, I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice Isaac. You see, the significance in that is this is where actions speak louder than words. This is where talk is cheap. Put your money where your mouth is. I mean, you guys might talk and say, you know what? I'm not afraid to parachute. I'm not afraid to jump out of a plane. Sweet. Let's go get on the plane. You get on the plane. You have the parachute on. 
They open the door. It's time, everybody, to jump. And you just keep sitting there. And you're like, why do you not? Oh, I, I, I'm not afraid. I'm confident. I'm good. But, you know, right now I'm just, I'm comfortable. At what point do you believe that person's not afraid? When they jump out of the plane. It's amazing It's amazing that Abraham kept believing God would fulfill his promise. But then God finally fulfills his promise. And then the very thing that he had waited 25 years for, God says, I want you to kill. And there was a crisis of faith, wasn't it? Abraham, do you believe me? Do you truly trust me? Prove it. Genesis 22, verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son, He then goes on and says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now I know that you fear God. Why does he know that he feared God? Because he was willing and he even began the process of taking his son's life as God had commanded him. You see, he had faith that God would do his will in this. Hebrews 11, 17, looking back at this, says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac And then it goes on, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So even from Abraham's mind, if I end up sacrificing my son, somehow, someway, God will raise him from the dead and he will make good on his promise. Do you walk out in faith like Abraham did? So we see the example of Abraham. Well, how about somebody else? Let's go to Rahab. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So once again, another context. Book of Joshua. Uh, They're going to enter into the promised land. They send spies into Jericho. They check out. The spies almost get caught. And the person that ends up helping helping them is Rahab uh, the prostitute. And she ends up telling them, in Joshua 2, 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And he goes on and says, as I have dealt kindly with you, will you also deal kindly with my father's house? So what they end up doing is they promise, they assure her, when we come back in to take Jericho, we will protect you and your family. And sure enough, when they come in, they do that. She's protected. Uh, Hebrews eleven thirty one. It goes on and says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because of friendly welcome to the spies. That's what they gave uh, to the, she did to the spies. So they came in and they protected. Why is that significant? Because specifically with, with Rahab, she was very important. Why? Do you remember what we've just been preaching through? First Samuel? Who's related to David? Rahab. God using this woman because she had faith in Yahweh. She believed in God. She acted on faith by protecting. Because there's a possibility by holding the spies, she would have been considered what? A traitor, treason. She could have been killed as a result of that. Let's say hypothetically they don't overtake Jericho and it finds out that they tried to help the spies. And yet she in faith did what she did. She protected them. You see, she wasn't just a good talker. She wasn't a con artist. She wasn't just talking out of both sides of her mouth. She was acting in faith because she believed Yahweh. She believed in God and she was going to protect God's servants. Once again, do your actions match your works, your words? Are you trustworthy? 
Are you consistent? Because that's what we're, we're seeing here. There's a consistency going on. Faith will be proven by your actions. And I think if we're being really candid with one another, a lot of times, and maybe even all the time, there is a disconnect. There's a lot of people even here who talk a good game, but there's very little evidence in your life outside of maybe coming on Sunday morning that you walk with Jesus, and that, that should not be the case. So here's the controversy. So we've seen the counterfeit, confirmation, cases for the faith. Then verse 24 happens. Read it with me. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we hear that and immediately like, we're confused. We're perplexed. Because it sounds, if you had that verse only in the Bible, it would really sound like you and I earn our way to heaven, doesn't it? That, okay, like God's got this like, giant scale and as long as I do enough good works, it's going to outweigh my bad works. And that's how, and it's not faith, it's works. It's like, is that what's going on? All right, in order to deal with the controversy, I think we need to look two things. One, we need to look at what the Bible says elsewhere about works, okay? And then we need to look at what the Bible says elsewhere about faith. First of all, let's look at what the Bible says about works. One of the great examples is in the book of Galatians. Is Galatia, the book of Galatians. Uh, what Paul was dealing with the Galatians was there was a group of people in the church that felt if you followed all the Jewish uh, laws and rules and regulations, that would save you. Like, yeah, you need Jesus, but you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus plus this stuff. So one of the big things they really loved in all the Jewish things, it was kind of like the, the real marker is circumcision. So you would have Gentiles who normally weren't being circumcised like the Jews were at that time, they're getting circumcised because they feel like they need to have that done in order to be saved. And, and Paul, like, freaks out on them. He calls them even mutilators of the flesh. Because, like, why are you doing this? Listen to what he says in Galatians, Galatians 2.16. He says, Yet we know the person's not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Did you hear that? Nobody will be justified. In other words, you can't put enough good stuff on that side of the scale to outweigh your bad stuff. You are not earning your way to heaven. That's what the Bible keeps teaching again and again. Paul, talking to the Romans— Laying out the gospel, Romans 3.28, he says, We hold that, no one, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what is the Bible teaching us about works? That works are insufficient. Works are inadequate. Well, how impressive are your works? Do they stand up? Are you willing to... Hold your works up against God and say, look at me, look at what I've done, show me to my place in heaven. Because that's what his concern is. So the Bible says, all right, works are inadequate, works are insufficient, but what else does the Bible say about faith? It says that faith alone in Christ alone is what saves Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of everybody. 
works so that no one may boast. If you remember the old Willy Wonka movie, he puts a golden ticket in so many candy bars throughout the city and people go out and everybody's buying the candy bar because the kids or the adults who end up with the golden ticket can go to the factory and do a tour of the chocolate factory. But if you don't have the golden ticket, you're not getting in. What the Bible's teaching throughout scripture, the golden ticket to get into heaven is faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And here, here is the, 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 the controversy of it all. Guess who Paul uses as an example of this? What Bible character? Guess. Abraham. Oh my goodness, what is going on? Romans 4.2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. That he's saying Abraham's not justified by works. And his argument comes from history. Pre-Isaac, so Isaac's not been born. He keeps believing that God's going to make this happen. He has faith, even though he's got a barren wife who's old. And then Genesis 15.5 says this, So say your offspring be, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So works are inadequate. Faith is our golden ticket. That's what the Bible teaches, okay? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? All right. So we got counterfeit faith, confirmation of faith, cases for faith, controversy over the faith. Well, what final conclusion do we make about faith then and works? Is there Bible in conflict? Was Martin Luther right to question James being in the Bible? Is there a crisis here? Is, is, do Paul and James, are they teaching two separate things? What we need to do, first of all, is know definitions, okay? We need to know definitions. Read verse 24 with me. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Justified. A, a dikaio. Dikaio. Got two main meanings in the Bible, all right? Uh, have you ever used a word where it had different meanings and people were confused by what you said? We were in college, at seminary. Uh, my friend Robert, he was from uh, Ghana. I think it was Ghana. I'm almost certain it was Ghana, Africa. Um, no, he's of Kenya, not Ghana, Kenya. My other friend is from Ghana, from Kenya. And one day we were talking, I don't even know how this conversation got on, and we were talking about drawers. Like, if you were pulling out a drawer in the kitchen, well, when he hears drawers, he's not pulling out something in the kitchen. He's talking about his undergarments. So, like, we had this really big confusion. As I'm talking about his drawers, he thinks I'm talking about his underwear. I'm, I'm telling him to pull them out, you know, put them in, and he's just confused. He's like, I don't understand what you're saying. Why are you talking about my undergarments? And he's saying undergarments. Like, who says undergarments? So it got really confusing. And then finally, we got on the same page. We're like, okay, what I'm talking about is this, this wood contraption that's pulling out of a dresser. He's like, oh, we, where I'm from, we call drawers, our undergarments, drawers. So there was a confusion. Justified. I think we're having the same problem. 
Justified can mean, and often does in Scripture, it means having a right standing before God. It means counting sinners righteous in Christ by grace through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him might become the righteousness of God. And we talk about this, Christ redeeming us by becoming a curse, that he is in our place. So when God sees you and I, he does not see our sin, our, our worthiness of wrath and condemnation. No, he sees us clothed in the righteousness of God. That's, so when we say somebody has been justified, we believe that they have this right standing based on Christ. The Galatians thought being circumcised put us right before God. And Paul's like, no, what puts you right before God is Jesus. Romans 5, 16, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Well, have you been declared righteous before God? What is your standing? And why is it in what capacity? Is it based on Jesus? Because we need to know not only the definition, we need to know the distinction. He goes on in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So Paul's context was dealing with Christians or professing Christians who thought they needed to add something to their faith in order to be right with God. Such as Jewish laws, dietary laws, circumcision. And he's like, no, you don't need to add anything. Jesus' work, we say it often, is sufficient. It's enough. That what Jesus did, when he died on the cross, the blood he shed, he doesn't need a little extra to get us into heaven. James' context, so we need to understand this, is radically different. He's talking to people who profess faith, but feel like that faith should have no evidence of that faith. You see, we're talking to two different groups of people. And what the other definition of justified can mean, listen to this. Counting someone righteous because he does what is righteous. There's an example of this in the gospel, Luke 7, 29. He says, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared, they justified, they dekyoed God as just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So in that verse, it's saying that they justified God. Does God need to have a right standing before God, through the faith and work in Jesus Christ, that makes no sense, right? What they're saying, what they're declaring is God is just based on what he had done. Now, God was just whether or not, but they're declaring it because they're counting him as just based on his action. And then Jesus goes on, same language, a few verses later, verse 35, wisdom is justified by her children. What does that mean? Something is wise, it will produce children. You'll know that something was wisdom based on the, the, the follow-through of that and the actions and what ends up happening. It's the idea of proof and evidence of righteousness. So when we say somebody is justified in this context, we're saying they are right because they are doing right things. It's evidence. It's proof. It's a different word usage here. It's not about being declared. Wisdom does not need to be right before God, right? Wisdom doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So are James and Paul against each other? 
Is it possible that both statements are true and right? Who here balances the checkbook in the house? Have you ever had the checkbook get mixed up balance-wise? Whoever, everybody who does the checkbooks, you're a liar. At some point, it's happened. And we'll do a sermon on lying next week. We do, we just, but it, like it's happened before. And, and, I, and I remember like I was so confused. Like I just, and it, you're, you're scrambling. Like, I don't understand why the bank statement's saying this and my records are saying this. And you start, what I do, at least how I, I roll on it, is I go back into the bank statement and my statement until they match up. And then I start working through and I'm like, where did I screw up? I'm like, did I? In in the past, things I've done is I put, I've inverted numbers. 121 became 112. I've forgotten to put the decimal. It was like, you know, 75 cents and I just put it zero, like whatever. And then the, the other one that historically has been the problem, I don't know if you've had this, you wrote a check and people don't cash the check for the love, right? Cash the check. I wrote that check four months ago. I forgot it was even in existence. I thought that was deposited. That money is, is actually, and then all of a sudden they decide magically a year later, I'm going to deposit this check. And then all of a sudden the money and your, your account ends up being overdrawn. But when you do it all and you, you kind of do the math and do the right accounting, it matches up. There's no conflict at all. There was just a misunderstanding. I think when we look at faith and works, it looks like an imbalanced checkbook, doesn't it? At first, it doesn't make sense. We hear that verse 24, and we're like, how is this possible? Paul keeps saying, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. And then James is saying, no, you need works. I think the only thing we need to do is do some biblical accounting. The person who knows and trusts and yields to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is saved. Period. The end. That's what the Bible teaches. God counts his son's righteousness on their behalf. That's how we're saved. That hasn't changed. James did not change how salvation works. Our only hope to be welcomed as good and faithful servants is going to be Jesus, not your works. But the person who has saving faith, the person who trusts in Christ will obey Christ. Works will proceed from their life. I love how the Westminster Confession Chapter 11.2 says, listen to this. This is, this is gold, how they word it. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified. It's the alone instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. In other words, genuine faith produces genuine works. You see, James and, John, and Paul are not in disagreement. They're looking at the same subject from different angles. Paul's context, he's talking to people that thought you could work your way to heaven. 
James is talking to people that think you don't have to do anything. It just, it's just this cheap grace, this abuse of grace. It's just because I prayed a prayer, because I checked the box, because I walked down an aisle, I'm good to go, live however I want. It doesn't matter. And both extremes need to be dealt with. And that's what the Bible is teaching, that we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, but our lives will never be alone without works. We'll never be devoid from that. And one last thought as we close, even those works, guess what, are the work of God in our lives. We don't even get credit for those works. They're evidence that we have faith. But guess what? All the good works in your life, your obedience, the holiness, the fruit of the Spirit that we see in your life, you, you don't even need to pat yourself on the back because that's the Holy Spirit working through you. That's God applying His Scripture. So first to last, it all rests on Jesus. But a saving faith is a transformative faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, and, and one, we uh, thank you that you give clarity throughout Scripture, that we are not uh, resting and dependent upon our own understanding. Uh, even where it sometimes is difficult and confusing, you shed light elsewhere. And we thank you, God, as we consider this thought, this, this subject, this matter, that at the end of the day, our standing before you rests on Jesus. But we thank you, God, that you do a work in and through those who have been saved. I pray for anybody here today who has a false sense of security, anybody here today who does not realize their need of Jesus, we pray for them, God. We pray that you would open up their eyes to the gospel, that they would would see their need uh, to not only trust in Christ, but live a life under his lordship. And we pray, God, that our lives would be of, of great evidence of Christ in all that we do, that we would bear much fruit all to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.